welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And if you have any questions or comments for us, you can send them to me at kbmakel at aol.com or leave them in the comments section on Podbean. And this is episode number 182. Well, we have quite a few things to get to. Uh, The first thing in the news, and I'm not going to talk too much about the peripherals, but, you know, the Israeli-Hamas deal, obviously that's going to be a bigger deal than, you know, it's emerging as a bigger deal than perhaps a lot of people thought it was right after the initial attack, you know. Um, This may be months, it could be years, It, it will be years of continuous problems. Uh, even once the operation is over, there there will be there will be problems after this. So, you know, don't expect that some of the bum foolery you've been seeing, even here in the United States, is going to go away anytime soon. Um, the most frightening thing has been the number of pro-Hamas demonstrators. What has happened is. There is a principled position, which I think some people could take. I don't agree with this. I'm just telling you. There could be people who say, I am pro-Palestinian rights. I think they've been treated abominably, whatever. But I am, I am absolutely distanced from Hamas and terrorism. But they could be pro-Palestinian rights and be against Hamas and terrorism. But you don't see that. You see that it, it's like all in, 100%. All in. Um, Palestinian rights are now synonymous with Hamas, which I think is strange. I think that's a terrible position to put yourself in. And even though she just escaped censure by the Congress that the odious little skunk Rashida Talib. She could have easily made that distinction and kind of been the leader, at least in this country, of, hey, there's a distinction, let's, let's realize what this is. But they don't. They're all radicalized. The Democratic Party is so radicalized, it's actually tearing itself apart now because a lot of the Jewish constituents of the Democratic Party are, are, are on the complete other side of this. So they're, they're kind of going after each other. And, and, you know, frankly, they deserve each other. I mean, um, there's insanity going on in the Democratic Party, and there has been for a long time. This has just exposed it. So we'll see how that shakes. But these students, this is very troubling because a lot of these students, it's my suspicion, uh, are also probably connected in some way shape or form to the Democratic Party street army which the media calls Antifa. Antifa is a street thug army like the SS brown shirts uh, of Hitler's Germany and they they do the bidding of the Democratic Party essentially and uh, a lot of these pro-Hamas people I think are probably connected to that infrastructure and you know they're what we call in the military dual-hatted they're a hamas person but they're also an antifa person so they're they're members of both organizations there's not a big distinction in a lot of ways now i'm not saying they're completely interchangeable but i'm saying there's probably enough crossover so that this could be a problem this could be a real problem for Jewish people, this could be a real problem. As a matter of fact, since I'm assuming they're not stupid, um, obviously synagogue security has to be skyrocketing, whether they're hiring people, whether they're forming their own committees, whether they're doing whatever it is they need to do to try to keep their synagogue safe. uh, I'm sure that is kind of taking place. But you can't live like that forever. Yeah, that's going to be that's going to be very difficult and this could go on for years. This is the biggest wave of anti-Semitism I think we've seen since World War II. It's amazing. Um, it is really amazing and to think that we'd actually see it here 
is uh, even worse. The people tearing down the posters of, of little children that were taken hostage. You know, how odious is that? I mean, how horrible is that? You know, and, and really, and, and you see these people on TV, they're tearing them down and they, they turn around and they laugh. And they, they do, and, and there are people who can articulate this much better than I. Uh, they pull the immoral equivalence. Well, Israel does this, that's why Hamas does that, and, and blah, blah, blah. Um, there is no moral equivalence between the two. One wants to live in peace, and the other one won't allow it. The Palestinians and Hamas will not allow it. And, uh, you know, there's all these bogus arguments of who really owns the state of Israel. Is it the Jews because they can go back to Judea and, you know, whatever this all is. I mean, you know, it's not going to be clean and there's no way to redress it now. There's no way to fix this. There's no fix for this. That's the problem. It's intractable at this point. Um, you know, in 1948, Israel became independent and they fought a war that preserved their independence. Um, to, to the Palestinians at the time, yeah, that was a bad deal. Um, under the Palestinian mandate, the Balfour Declaration, and Britain ran Palestine for well, 30 years, uh, it was probably a bad deal for both parties. Before that, it was the Ottoman Empire. That was a bad deal for both parties. Because the Turks really don't like the Arabs any more than they like the Jews. So, um, you know, it, it's not something that can be fixed. And I don't know that anybody, you know, there's no solution that's going to satisfy everybody and stop the violence, that's for sure. Uh, the violence... You know, I kind of call this mainstreaming terrorism. Terrorism has been around for forever, especially Palestinian terrorism. But this is really, this is really mainstreaming it. Like this is a legitimate way that they can, they can do it. It's it's almost like when you have an inner city riot, and they say, well, it's black rage. You know, it's not it's not them really doing anything bad. It's it's them just kind of letting off steam and all that. Now, that's totally bogus. The people living down there who are having their homes burned out um, or are afraid to go out on the street because of all the violence, you know, it's, it's, it's not just rage. It's not just letting off steam. So it, it is a pretty ugly, ugly situation. Um, you know, and of course, this has brought into question the Biden open border policy where they have the the great American law enforcement icon, Alejandro Mayorkas, otherwise known as Alejandro Gay Dorcas. I mean, he is a piece of trash. He is filth. And the worst part is his mother was a Romanian Jew who escaped the Holocaust. So you think you, just on that, you would say, you would think he would say, yeah, you know, we, we have to have the border basically under control to make sure agents don't get in. Yet he sits there like the brain addled fool that he is, you know, a product of UC Berkeley, a product of the Democratic Party. And he's even doing something that his own family roots know leads to no good that a bunch of terrorists have probably infiltrated along the southern border. Um, and it goes back to what I'm saying. I mean, should you go out and buy guns because and supplies and things because you think there's going to be a bunch of Middle Eastern terrorists, you know, running amok, <laughs> you know, through the streets? Well, you're still at greater risk from homegrown you know, street thugs and violence and robberies and all of that. Because for the last couple of years, our judici judicial system is not putting these people away. And it's been screaming about defunding the police and it's not putting people away. That's the greater threat. But this other is still out there. Um, so you are under threat and you should be taking the adequate precautions but I don't know, uh, it doesn't seem like a lot of people want to do that. And uh, 
you know, speaking about our law enforcement, our, our magnificent law enforcement, especially on the federal level, um, you know, I, I have to go back um, and clarify what I said about the Vickers case. Larry Vickers is the victim of a witch hunt, okay? All SOTs and all of these guys, post-dealer samples are not a crime. It's not a problem. Um, I don't know why they dug into these law letters and they got somebody to say that they weren't any good. I don't, you know, I don't want to get into the specifics of the case, but I'm just like, this is small ball compared to a lot of stuff, especially in Fast and Furious when Hussein Obama and Eric Holder shipped thousands of weapons south of the border um, for no apparent reason. <laughs> it was it was bizarre they did that. They even forced gun dealers to sell weapons to people who they knew were bad because they, they wanted to, quote, track these weapons, which was a lie. Uh, they were just trying to fill... Somehow, somebody decided that they needed to fill... Um, the weapons needs of these cartels and I don't know how that was I don't know what was paid to who or how this all got or who was fooled by this and approved it I don't know any of that but I do know what the end result was thousands of weapons going south so it's, it's a pretty pretty horrible case to go after a guy like Vickers is they were looking for somebody to make an example of and they're looking to make an example out of Vickers because he is predominantly a Caucasian ex-military weapons loving guy uh, maybe a little too much weapons loving you know I, I'm not saying that that you know he's he's mr. completely innocent on all this and he was dealing with Russia anything to do with Russia is electric um, so I, I'm all you know more than electric it's actually radioactive anything to have having to do with transferring money in and out of russia or going to russia and back or anything else is basically gonna be a problem uh, they're looking for that and that's probably what put him on the radar screen are those law letters i mean who who cares about those all these little tiny police department guys have to say is Hey, there's a bunch of meth using white supremacists in my area, and I need real weapons to combat them. Hey, they probably would be getting connexes, you know, shipping containers full of weapons from the federal government. If you if they think you're going to use them against white supremacists, I can't imagine that uh, you, there would be MRAPs and everything else. You know, you could probably get tanks. You know, I mean, they'll they'll give you any amount of of assistance if you articulate that as the threat. So. I think, uh, you know, the rest of this is just a bunch of nonsense. Um, you know, I mean, what can I say? Um, you know, when you, when you are walking on the edge, you have to be very careful of the ground that's under your feet. And, uh, you know, I have three SBRs, and they, as, as awesome as they are, they're a pain in the butt. I mean... If I want to take it across state lines, I live in an area where every state I could conceivably go to, you know, drive to anyway, um, is a class three state. So that's not a problem. But I have to get a letter from the ATF and tell them, yes, I'm going over to this other state and I'm going to be there for this amount of time. And this is kind of the city I'm going to. And then they send me back a thing with giving me permission. I mean, it's not a big deal. And I don't know if anybody ever even looks at those, but uh, uh, that's what you have to do. You know, the other thing I had to do was get them engraved. And it took me a longer time than I'd like to admit, uh, because there is no timeline. It doesn't say you have to have it done within a week of getting it converted. So it took me a little longer, and I found a guy who would engrave it the way I want so that the engraving was very, very... Um, difficult not difficult to see but it was concealed well and it wasn't blatantly horribly obvious and uh, I found that I found the guy who did it and he did a great job and I was really happy with that he got me into compliance and I'm really happy um, now you know if before I got that done 
I suppose if they'd come down and grab these things from me, I guess I would have been on charges. I don't know, you know. Um, it's Gun law is very arbitrary. The interpretation of the laws are very arbitrary. It's very, very um, difficult to want to deal with something like that. So I don't know. Uh, we'll see what happens. Um, my stuff is all straight. I, I assume Vickers will, because he has no priors, because of his age, I understand he's got some health issues. Will he actually go to jail? I don't think so. But he's done in the firearms community. Um, you know, that's the, that's the other risk. Why risk something that you really like? Um, you know, it's at that time, it's sort of like, well, let's develop other interests, like maybe... <laughs> black powder cartridge rifles or or something else i mean if you're him you you stay away from the russia stuff you know just as as tantalizing as it is um i would have stayed away from it and gone into something a little more safe that he could have enjoyed and uh he'd still have his rights but he'll be a i believe he'll be a felon so he won't have gun rights and unless uh Unless a miracle happens and a very pro-Second Amendment president comes in and pardons him, I don't see what uh, I don't see much hope for all that. Uh, but there's some good news. Uh, if you're on Facebook and you don't even have to be a member to to look at this, there's a site called Retro Rifle Builders. And it's basically guys building retro AR-15s. You know the SP-1. Uh, M16A1, and then and then a lot of the the carbines, you know, all that that 19 that fixed handle carry handle era, uh, very cool. It's very very cool, and there are some guys on there who've done some amazing work. Um, I really like it. I mean, I really really like it. Um, so it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun to go on. Um, in concert with that, Brownells has now brought out a decent retro AR-15 scope. It's marked Colt, so they must have paid paid Colt some money to to use their logo. And uh, you know, it no longer says retro in big words. You know, that was always the worst part of the first ones they brought out was they said retro. And I mean, when you're putting them on a retro rifle, you don't want it to say retro. You want it to look retro. So uh, the, the new ones look like the original scopes and look very nice. Um, I'm probably going to stick with my, my cheap Chinese imitations since they seem to be doing just fine. Um, just kind of going with those. But if you're a real, if you want that level of detail, that is a really nice option to have. Um, the part that's not as much fun is, you know, they don't offer the retro rifles anymore. They offer the components by which you can construct one but they really don't offer the rifles anymore I, I saw that on their website and I think it's been that way for a while I mean um, and that's actually a shame that's actually a shame because they um, they did a great job I think the Brownells Proto AR that I purchased from them is probably the best AR-15 that I've ever had of that type you know it, it really is it's very very well made so pretty awesome but retro rifle builders on Facebook fun place to go um, you know the nice part about it is it's nice there's not a lot of backbiting like other forums and things that are on uh, Facebook so um, yeah it's it's pretty decent pretty decent Okay, now we will go to my favorite part of the podcast, which is questions and answers. And the first one is, have you seen all the 9mm PCCs that are on the market? Most of them are AR-based, some are AK-based. Uh, what do you think of those? Well, I, I think that, you know, I, I think what's driving them is two things. Number one, you can use... In USPSA competition, they have a carbine, you know, a PCC uh, um, category class. 
So I think that's a driven part of it. Another part of it is nine millimeter ammo, even these days, is still a lot cheaper than uh, most other centerfire ammunition. So um, it's got that going for it. It's got interchangeability with the most of the pistols that a lot of people want to carry these days, nine millimeter. So uh, they make sense. Uh, they also have light recoil. You know, to me, they all kind of, except for the AK ones, but the, the, the AR based ones all sort of look alike to me, kind of get a yawn. People put a, uh, a red dot on it and off to the races they go. Um, not a bad option for home defense. I've never enjoyed a 9mm PCC. And I'll tell you why. Um, you know, it's it, it, it feels like for the weight you're carrying and the bulk you're carrying, you're getting something very underpowered. So... Um, you know that's that's kind of it that's kind of it for me um if i wanted one it would actually be a historical one and i would i would sbr um an uzi carbine so i had something that looked like a real uzi but was semi-automatic and you know was had the uh, appropriate length barrel that's what i would do but you know that that's starting to run into some bucks too Okay, next question. What are your favorite single action revolvers? Um, I think I've talked about this before. My favorite ones are Rugers. Um, for just the shootability, the adjustable sights, Ruger Blackhawk, you know, I, I realize Freedom Arms is probably made to a much higher standard. Um, but, you know, when it comes to single actions, you don't really find a lot that have um adjustable sights because in the old most of them are old west copies of the colt saa and they did not have of course adjustable sights so um you know you you really kind of get into that fixed sight groove across the uh the length of the top of the frame but you know to get a modern sight on it you go to the ruger blackhawk and it's it's a wonderful gun i mean it's really a wonderful gun uh, moder moderately priced, good quality, very durable, and uh, it's there. Now, one of the things about S single action revolvers, you know, it's always been kind of a question in my mind. You know, if you look at evolution of things, they should have vanished a hundred years ago. I mean, they should just be a a historical curio um, that vanished a hundred years ago but they didn't because they were very useful people like them people like the way they feel in their hand and uh, they're very reliable it was proven technology but you would think with all the wonderful Colt and Smith and Wesson double actions that have been available since World War One over just over a hundred years ago that uh, you know they would have uh, of course been just absolutely um, you know extinct and they haven't been so a lot of people like them a lot of people like the way they look the way they perform whether you like the more modern ones like I do the Rugers or whether you like the uh, the more traditional single action army types a lot of people like them but uh, you know I you know it's it's always one of those things of what is it a single action revolver does better than a double action and i can't really think of anything other than it's just it just feels good and uh the way it looks you know it does have a very utilitarian very business-like look so that's all i can that's really all i can think of and here is our next question, which is related. How really? How long was the cap and ball revolver era? Why weren't more converted to cartridges? Well, the reason you know we find a lot of conversions are a little bit scarce. I mean, not that many, comparatively speaking, were converted. Some were obviously, but most, a lot of them, were just kept the way they were. And, um, 
you know, I've often thought about this a little bit. How long do people really use them? Because you read, uh, like, the biography of of um, Elmer Keith, and he was born in 1899, and he talks about shooting them as a young man, you know, a 36 Navy. Um, I've also read other things about, you know, people who were shooting them, and these were before the reproductions, people in the 30s and 40s shooting cap and ball pistols, sometimes even in competition. So they must have been around. And the, the other piece of anecdotal evidence is that surplus dealers in the early 1900s up till probably World War One, uh, sold different types like stars and other things, star revolvers and other others. They sold uh, a lot of those uh, surplus and, and they were very inexpensive very very inexpensive so um you know they were around and a lot of them survived today that's why you know see you would think that if con cartridge conversions were this incredibly great leap forward that there would be very few cap and ball pistols today and there would, there would be conversions everywhere you know every every gun would be converted but they weren't uh far from it and I think part of that reason was, number one, people didn't shoot pistols back then the way we think they did. Um, they were used very infrequently. Uh, reloading pistols was not considered a big idea, so the advantage of cartridges were was there, but it wasn't as critical as we would think it was. Um, another one was, if you don't have cartridges, but you have caps, powder and a ball you can you can shoot you know it was and that was a lot cheaper than buying factory metallic cartridges so i think all those things kind of and there were just traditionalists there were people who just that's the gun they had they didn't really need a newer gun that was technology they knew how to use they used it they didn't feel uh necessary that it was necessary to replace it for just its own replacement's sake um, the gun that's going to sit in a drawer and get fired once a year, um, you know, face it, you, there's no real need to replace that with a more expensive gun that's going to sit in a drawer and that you fire once a year. So a lot of those things uh, um, contributed to keeping those around for for really long period of time. Uh, another another thing was, you know, you, you you know, the passage of time is the passage of time. Um, those things survived to be about a hundred years old and then collectors started swooping in and picking them up and you know they just didn't they just didn't get um, there was no impetus to keep shooting them or to to convert them and starting in the 1950s uh, there were the um, uh, reproductions were available so you know those those guns kind of they they sort of stayed in this second line or yeoman use and then they were replaced so then then they're available and there's no there's no impetus to to upgrade them there's no you know by that time revolver technology had just gone leaps and bounds past the the conversion revolvers so um there's no there was no impetus to make conversion revolvers so it lasted i would say that probably until world war one uh, your chance of running across a cap and ball pistol was probably pretty good. Probably pretty good. Was it the majority? No. But I bet if you, I bet if you had ten guys, ten random people carrying handguns, probably one or two of them at least uh, would have a cap and ball, and that was because they weren't uh, planning on using them. They didn't use them a whole lot. So there you go. Okay, here is something. There was a conversation about the hijacker D.B. Cooper. What kind of handgun would hijacker D.B. Cooper have carried? Well, first of all, let me let me just go this real quick. D.B. Cooper was the first and perhaps the only successful, no one really knows, a hijacker who is who departed the aircraft via parachute. Um, Thanksgiving 1971 man comes into the Portland Airport gives his name as uh, Dan Cooper not DB but Dan Cooper buys a ticket gets on Northwest 
uh, Orient Flight 305 that's going to Seattle. A puddle jump, 25-minute flight. He gets on, basically, he's the, the flight's not full. The flight's only about half full. He sits in the back, passes a note to a um, stewardess saying, I have a bomb. Uh, he opens a briefcase and shows her what looks like a bomb. Nobody knows if it was real or not. I tend to believe that it was not real for a whole bunch of reasons. But um, <clears throat> anyway, he demands four parachutes, uh, two main, two reserve, and $200,000 in cash. So they fly around until they gather these things. Then they land, they bring them on the aircraft. He lets all the passengers and, and um, keeps only one of the stewardesses and the, the flight crew. Um, they get up, he tells them to fly. Basically, uh, they're flying towards uh, Reno to uh, refuel because he's told them, I want you to fly with the gear down, the flaps at 15 degrees, and that would keep the airspeed of the aircraft uh, low enough so that he could make a successful jump. He lowers the air stairs, which were in the back of the plane. The seven, Boeing 727 had a set of auxiliary stairs that uh, could lower. He lowered them in, fl in flight, which they didn't know they could do, but in actuality, they could do this. He lowers it in flight um, and then basically jumps, jumps off and is never heard from again. And so a lot of people have surmised uh, he was wearing apparently an overcoat, a suit coat, and he had a small bag with him, plus his fake bomb briefcase. And a lot of people speculate what was he carrying with him. Um, I would think that in case the fake bomb thing went went south for whatever reason, like, you know, hey, it falls over and all the stuff falls out and, and it's no longer a bomb, that he probably had a small handgun with him. I would think that it would be something on the uh, uh, order of a, of a Walther PPK, Sauer 38H, uh, Beretta 1934. Those were all inexpensive and readily available at the time, you know, 1971. You could probably go into any gun shop or pawn shop and buy something like that, you know, that was World War II surplus. I don't think he would have had anything as large as a 1911 or a Walther P-38. Uh, nothing as quirky as a Nambu, because those kind of look like cartoon guns, you know. Um, nothing as big as a Luger. It would have been something he could slip in his pocket. So you could choose anything. I, I think he would not have gone with a revolver for two reasons. Number one is a revolver's got a cylinder, and even a chief special is a little bit, a uh, little bit bulky. So I don't know that he would have gone with that. Possible though, it's possible. Um, the other thing was I think he probably thought of himself as a very cool. This is in the era of you know, Sean Connery's James Bond and Mission Impossible TV show, and you know the spy and and genre the cool guy spy genre was was pretty big then and a cool guy spy would probably have a ppk or something similar size to that so that's what i think he would have carried there's no proof that he carried anything um you can only surmise that um that that would have been a backup plan and plus okay you jump out of an airplane it's eight o'clock at night i think like eight fifteen. He jumps out of an airplane. He lands somewhere. Well, okay, great. You know, you're on the ground and you have a, a, a sack of $200,000. I mean, so are you telling me that you're not going to have a little pistol that you wouldn't have had that had that secreted on you somewhere? So if somebody pulls over and says, hey, who are you? What are you doing? And two or three guys pour out and you know, they decide to beat you up and take all your stuff. You're not going to lose a two hundred thousand. You're going to be armed. I mean, I think, I think it's. Or if you had to, you know, we we don't didn't use this back in 1971. They didn't use the term carjack, but the the uh, the method and the theory were known. Yeah, you jump, you know, you flag somebody down, you stick a gun in their face and take their car, or force them to give you a ride. Well, you, you need a handgun to make that work. You, even the fake bomb won't work. Like, you know, hey, I got a fake bomb in my briefcase. You know, the guy's going to peel out and drive away. <laughs> Take his chance. Um, 
So you're going to have a handgun, and he would have had probably something like that. And there are probably a dozen others. You know, I, I thought, well, you know, the Colt 1903 is one. It's a little bit bigger, but it's a possibility. But it's when it comes to, I would have preferred a PPK, I think, or the Sauer 38H. Um, you want something big enough so that it's intimidating. You don't want something small like a Browning 25 automatic or Colt 25 automatic. You want something, you know, 32 or 380 caliber that's, and you don't want something as clunky as a 1911 that's going to be big and people are going to say, what's that in your pocket? You know, because it's, it's going to be uh, uh, big there. It's, it's a better gun to use, but it's, it's, it's just not in that in that uh, realm going to be very concealable so uh, it would be it would be probably a not a not the tiniest automatic but a a uh, what was back then the kind of the mid-size mid-caliber automatic semi-automatic that's what he would have used okay here's another one almost related is the 380 ACP dead um, I don't know that it's dead. I would say though that the micro nine millimeters have have basically made it the the uh, pushed it into a way into the background. Um, and again, you t you have to talk about you know what is the ammo availability. You know, can you find you can find nine millimeter? Do you always find three eighty ACP? Uh, who is so recoil sensitive that they can't handle the nine well you know that's that's a that's a consideration and that probably keeps it alive plus all of the you know just the historical amount of guns in 380 acp that are around there'll still be some ammunition made for it but i don't think you know i don't think there's a whole lot of enthusiasm for it there's some there's still some you can get one of the ones i think would be very cool was browning made them they might still make them, but it's like kind of a uh, three-quarter size 1911 that's in 380. I always thought that was very cool, you know. That was just very cool. There was um, somebody made a 380 Luger. It, it was like Irma. You know, it wasn't a very high-quality gun or anything. But I think I think Irma made a 380 Luger back in the 60s and 70s. Very cool gun, but they had a lot of problems because quality control... <laughs> at that price point wasn't wasn't very uh wasn't very great so i think uh you know there's there hasn't been much i don't think even the cheapo manufacturers i don't think high point doesn't make a 380 i'm sure that i know that they were a staple of those the ring of fire gun makers you know the jennings brico Jimenez, those guys that have always been kind of on the um, I think they're all out of business now, but those guys who were always kind of, you know, the real low-end um, people were, uh, they they had a lot of 380s. So, but, you know, most of that is gone now. Most of that is, is gone, so I don't see too many. I think Glock makes a 380, and, uh, you know, if you, if you, they're still in some product lines, but but uh, they're, they're certainly not like the micro nine millimeters, that's for sure. That is for sure. Ah, uh, will political instability and terrorism fuel gun sales in the USA? Well, there's always a reason to buy a gun. And this does provide a reason. Whether there will be a run on guns, I'm not sure. It's possible. I think the thing that could create a run on guns, again, is more either just arbitrary regulation, uh, executive order, nonsense, that kind of stuff. Or, um, yeah, or, or actually legislative gun control type stuff. That'll fuel, that'll fuel it more than, uh, I think, the threat of terrorism. I think threat of terrorism will sustain sales but i don't think it'll create the the panic by run like we had for the pandemic and george floyd and everything else i'm actually worried more worried about ammo than i am um about guns because even during 
the the great the COVID and George Floyd, you could still find guns all over the place. What you couldn't find was ammo. So um, I think that that's what I worry about the most. Okay, here is the next question. Was marksmanship as good in the 1800s as TV and the movies portray it? Um, I, I'm going to kick out, you know, nonsense like the Lone Ranger and, and, you know, Roy Rogers. Well, I think Roy Rogers was kind of 20th century thing because I remember them running around in a Jeep. What was it called? Annabelle or Maybell or something. So kicking out like Roy Rogers and, you know, some of those, some of that stuff. I, I don't think, and again, there will there'll be people who vehemently disagree with this. I don't think marksmanship in the 1800s was really all that good. Now, just like today, you might have some very gifted people, but unless the person was an exhibition shooter, um, a lot of people did just didn't shoot very much. And as we know now, practice is everything. Practice makes perfect. So, so I would. Um, I would think that since they didn't shoot, that they weren't that good. And in fact, even if you look at like Wild Bill Hickok's 75-yard shot that he did against, I think it was Davis Tut. Um, you know, put up a put up a man-sized silhouette target at 75 yards, and I I guarantee that with a cap and ball revolver, if if you're a a person who shoots regularly, you could probably hit that. Um, you know, you might, it might take you a little bit of experiment, some trial and error to get the holdover correct, but I don't think that would be that difficult to, um, to do. Uh, when I was a lot younger and I was in the military stationed at Fort Irwin, California, um, there was a fledgling gun club there in a gun range and we spent all kinds of time there. And, uh, you know, I, I could hit a gong at 100 yards quite easily with uh, Smith & Wesson Model 29s. Um, now, I was shooting my 44 Special kind of mid-range hand load, which, you know, was it was more powerful than factory ammo, but it wasn't as, it wasn't Magnum, you know, it wasn't, wasn't that. So, um, and it was designed for accuracy. So, uh, I would, I was fire those and... You know, the fact of the matter is, they, um, I was able to hit that thing. A lot of times I could hit it five out of six times, you know. Uh, and that's nothing more than practice. Nothing more than practice. I don't think I'd do so well today doing that. But, um, you know, you can practice up and you can, you can do what are seemingly uh, feats of marksmanship that you never thought you were capable of if you just practice. So, practice is practice is golden and I just think back in those days they didn't they didn't practice I mean I look and I see I, I try to go with a lot of the the um, you know historical things uh, people didn't go in and buy cases of ammo like we do now I mean if you're a serious shooter you you don't buy a box of nine millimeter you buy a case and that case is a thousand rounds and I don't think anybody did that. And in fact, part of the testament, I will say, is even when you look at the guns that belong to some of the famous gunfighters and, and, and some of the other people, they're, they're not that, their finish might be worn, but the guns aren't that heavily used. I mean, it's not like you find a Colt single action that's had 2,000 or 3,000 rounds fired through it. I think you could find a Colt single action that is 125 years old and it will or let's say 140 years old and it in its life may have had 500 rounds fired through it maybe you know I mean I think that is the case that's one of the reasons you find so many guns in good condition you don't find you find them a lot of times it's not that they're worn out it's that they've been neglected so I would say that that is the, the thing I would uh, um, realize is that, you know, uh, the Wyatt Earps and some of these other guys, 
uh, you know, how well would they do at a cowboy action match? I, I have a funny feeling these guys wouldn't do as well as we would think. Uh, I don't think they would do nearly as well as we would think they would. Um, now, again, there when you're actually, it's a different deal shooting at target versus shooting at a real person. But they've even they've even proven that you know the uh, the gunfight at the OK Corral was at extremely close range. I mean, there were no feats of marksmanship there. And when you look around at feats of marksmanship, a lot of them. Well, you have Billy Dixon with the, uh, you know, he, he kills a, an Indian on a horse at 1,500 yards um, with a 50 caliber sharps rifle. You know, you look at things like that and realize, yeah, that's that's pretty good. Was that an anomaly, though? With, I mean, you know, we have people who shoot at 1,500 yards all the time now with the modern equipment and... Uh, you know the modern equipment makes it easier but it's it's no guarantee i mean you still have to have excellent fundamentals of marksmanship to to make that happen and in fact i do believe i read somewhere where billy dixon actually borrowed that rifle so it wasn't like it was his so there was a big luck component that was in that where you know everything aligned you know maybe the sights were were just right for him and he got the holdover just right and uh, made it happen. But that was very, very rare. I think even the buffalo hunters who we, we think were these great, great marksmen, you know, I mean, I went to a buffalo farm and uh, frankly, I was amazed how large they are. And I could sit there going, man, if I were two or three hundred yards away, this, how, how could you miss? Especially when you look at the fact that they didn't exactly get one shot, one kills on these things. That a lot of times they had to shoot the same buffalo a couple of times to put it down just because of the nature of the lead bullets and the velocity and the other things. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a big surprise. Now, I'm not saying that I would go out and challenge, you know, these guys to anything. But I just don't think that, generally speaking, outside of the few gifted individuals that you have in every generation, in every every population, um, I don't think that uh, marksmanship in the Old West was very good at all. Um, that's that's just my my gut feeling, and it's not. And and part of that is the sighting systems, and and some of the stuff like that. I, I think what we see even in the most authentic or trying to be authentic television um, is usually pretty generous towards that. Okay, here's our next question. Which was the best single shot system? The sharps, the rolling block, or the trapdoor? Well, I'm, what I'm going to say is, I'm gonna preface everything. I only have experience with these things with modern cartridges. So I'm going to say the one I prefer is the trapdoor because it actually flips the empty out and then I have to, you know, cock the hammer and go. The rolling block, the rolling block, you have to cock the hammer, fire it, pull the hammer back and then work that, uh, um, the rolling block back and it kicks the empty out and then put the new one in and, you know, uh, the, the trapdoor, you, you can actually operate that on half cock, if I remember right. I really don't do that. I just do it all the way back. But you flip it out, put the new one in, and then you're already you're already cocked. So I, I just kind of like I just kind of like the trapdoor one better than the rolling block. Sharps is okay, but it's a little earlier, um, and it's got kind of that weird firing pin that kind of dog legs in and. At least the, the sharps I'm used to shooting does. Uh, and that's a, a 50-70 conversion. Uh, I'm trying to leave the cartridges out because, you know, it's a, a definitely a mix of things um, that you can have there with different cartridges and, and all that. So uh, I, I do like the trapdoor the best, but I realize that, you know, way back in the day that, you know, before they kind of broke the code on metallic cartridges that they were all kind of 
kind of different and some some were better than others and sometimes the rims would pull away and all that leaving all that aside just with modern brass i like the trapdoor first i will say the sharps second and the rolling block third that's what i would say okay the follow-up question to that is which system do you like better the martini henry the snyder conversion or the trapdoor um i prefer i like the martini henry i think i'm still going with the trapdoor though the martini henry was never a conversion it was designed strictly as a a single shot rifle so it's a it, it really has some refinements that the trapdoor doesn't have but i think the trapdoor was probably the best conversion system and it was so good that they just continued the design they you know they only converted a few used it as a conversion system for a few rifles and then they just uh, manufactured it on its own so that's how good it was the snyder is very cool but um you know you have to kind of tilt the rifle over to get the empty out and it does take the 577 cartridge which is ballistically not great um as far as trajectory goes but be that as it's be that as it may i'm i'm jonesing for one really bad but um finding a decent one is a uh, is a chore so i would have to say trapdoor martini henry snyder uh when it comes to just and i don't have a lot of experience especially with the weird you know um european single shots but for the ones designed as a single shot rifle from the ground up and that would actually include the rolling block um i prefer the martini henry i prefer it to the rolling block i sure do so i'd have to say that you know it, it does win the uh um it does win it when you compare it with other rifles that were designed ground up as uh, for, as single shots and it's amazing though that the rolling block though commanded a much wider market and i think that was availability and it was um and it was marketing you know marketing they remington had people all over the place selling those then they sold them from everywhere from sweden to south america eh, egypt all kinds of places had uh, rolling blocks it's actually a very cool gun if you collect if you were going to collect single shot military rifles the rolling block would be the one to collect because you could there's so many variations from so many different parts of the world it would really be a fascinating a fascinating uh, collection and it actually lasted the longest it you know the French we've talked about it the French ordered some in, in uh, World War one the British even got some in World War one um, they they bought some of the seven millimeter Mauser ones and they stuck them on their ships where you know face it a rifle on a ship doesn't get a lot of use um, and I don't know I don't believe they marked them so I don't know if you run across a seven millimeter Mauser rifle um, I don't know that there's any way to determine whether it was used by the Royal Navy or not the uh, French ones are rather simple because they want they were an eight millimeter label um, so they uh, they basically uh, the, the caliber gives it away but there were untold hundreds of thousands sold in Mexico Central America and other places uh, in seven millimeter Mauser so it's I think it's impossible to tell unless there's a specific marking uh, where one was used and that begs the the other question in World War one which one would I have preferred to have Hmm. An eight, a seven millimeter Mauser or eight millimeter Lebel rolling block, or a Martini Henry. And I guess you could say Martini Enfield 303 would be a better comparison. And I have to say I would prefer the Martini. I I don't know why. It just feels like it would be a better a better fit, especially in 303. But I think I would even prefer the uh, the big boy over over a rolling block in eight millimeter label. 
or Spanish Mauser. Yeah, definitely would prefer the big boy, that's for sure. Okay. Here is our last question, as my voice is giving out a little bit. But anyway, here's our last question. As a turn of the 20th century cavalryman, which is the better arm for mounted service? The Craig Carbine or the Winchester Model 1894 in 3030? You know, that is an interesting question. That is an interesting question. For mounted use, I would say I would use the 3030. And I've shot both quite a bit. I grew up on 3030s and I I have a Craig carbine that I that I shoot. Um I have to say that I would shoot if I were on horseback, I would want the 3030 because I could reload it by having it my reins and the forearm of the rifle in my left hand and I could with my right hand push cartridges through the king's patent gate and, and top off the 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 rifle I could do that the crag you could theoretically do that and open the gate and then you're fumbling around with the cartridges to get them into the uh, the loading gate on the right side of the magazine I, I think I would prefer the um, and ballistically face it there's not a whole lot of difference between 3040 Crag and um, 3030 Winchester I suppose you could say the Crag has an advantage because it, it took the round nose bullet which you really wouldn't want to use you know I, I I think that is one of the things I kind of understand a Spitzer in a um, in a tube magazine but I'm not sure that a round nose bullet was the big danger in a in a tube magazine. I'm just not sure it was. And frankly, I haven't heard that, you know, it, it, I just don't see, I've looked and I don't see any examples of a, a tube magazine exploding because a primer was dented. Yeah, I don't really see that, but but that's one of the reasons they've always used kind of blunt nose 30-30 rounds so they won't puncture the primer or ignite the primer of the cartridge in, ahead of them. I would say that uh, the only the only reason I would think that the 30-30 has a disadvantage, uh, the durability of the um, magazine tube. I suppose if you dent that, you've you've created a problem, but they're not that hard to replace. Um, so I don't think that that would have been a huge problem, but I think I think actually if you were mounted, now if you're dismounted, you could, and and face it, a lot of the cavalry did fight dismounted, especially in the uh, Spanish-American War, and mounted cavalry was basically extinct by World War One, for all practical purposes. Um, you would. Uh, you you would be a little better off with a a saddle carbine yeah a winchester saddle carbine um there's i think there's no real no real debate about that um you know the sight is a little more primitive but face it nobody uses those long range settings on the crag carbine anyway or any you know face it you're you're looking at 100 to 200 yards it's probably sufficient um, so I would I would actually go with the 3030 over the Craig I think. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to think of, you know, and if you're in the jungle like in the Philippines or in in Cuba, where they're you know the, you know you're basically doing jungle fighting, 3030 would be a really good one to have, really good one to have. So. And in fact, I, I don't even know if I'd really want a 30-30. I think if I had a 44-40 Winchester or Marlin, 18, Marlin 1895 and 38-40 or 44-40, if I'm in really dense vegetation uh, where the enemy is going to be literally just feet away when I stumble across them or they stumble across us, um, 
I, th I think that pissed the PCC shooting the 175 or 180 grain bullet close up. Yeah, it's it's only got about a hundred yard range, but who cares? You're you're fighting so close quarters. Yeah, I think you know the lever gun. It it never hit that market, but it, the potential was there. The potential was definitely there. Anyway. That is it for this edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And if you have any questions or comments, kbmakel at aol.com or put them in the comments section on Podbean. But until next time, this is Old School Guns out.